Welcome and thanks for listening to another episode of Zero Cafe. Today I speak with Andre Morris from ConversionCraft about implementing behavioral sciences in agile teams and his heuristic evaluation course at cxl.com. My name is Gil Jansen and welcome to Shiro Cafe, the podcast where I show you the behind the scenes of optimization teams and talk with their specialists about data and human-driven optimization and implementing a culture of experimentation and validation. This episode of Shiro Cafe is made possible by our partners Brainengineers, Convert.com and Online Dialogue. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4. So, Andre, welcome and great talking to you again. Uh, could you start off by giving us a quick intro to your background and how you started out with Zero? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, glad to be here. I'm, I started my company back in 1996, which is quite a long time. So back then, nobody talked about CRO. Uh, it, no. the, back then we called it an internet agency or web agency and we quickly focused on user experience and some methodology we quickly realized that if you can guide your clients with methodology they like it so we started with user research and we had some very early aha moments that what we do um, potentially delivers a lot of money to our clients. And I think it was back in 2004 when we started the systematic approach of optimizing a lead generation website. And that was the first client where we measured the impact of our work. And it was something like 300 million euros a year. And we were fascinated by that. We thought, wow, that makes a big difference. But that was still the time of scaling businesses with AdWords. So nobody was interested in hearing our story. It, it was actually a tough time. Um, because we thought we thought what we do is really clever, but there was no demand on the market. I would say it took another 10 years um, until people really started to care about the economic outcome of their websites and user experiences. But m my background is, um, to get back to your question, is a user experience view and a qualitative user research view, which then led us to the economic outcomes of measuring them. Um, yeah. 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 And I think, uh, yeah, 10, 10 years ago and even until maybe five years ago for a lot of industries, it was just cheaper, right? To, to just buy AdWords and, and throw more users yeah. at your website. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and it's, it's also very measurable, of course. That, that's, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember some awkward pitch presentations where we presented our methods and it, just like a, a secret door in the floor opened and we felt like we were dropped off. So somebody <laughs> said, what did they talk about? Next agency, please. And they presented some cool flash intro with animations and that was really creative. And yeah, of course, they, they went with that agency and we felt... Uh, or we had the impression that we did something wrong, which actually just took some time until uh, these topics, uh, yeah, got the right perspective on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of uh, companies now still, when when you when you bring up the topic of zero, it it feels like uh, most of them right now I th think and and see this as as kind of a sexy topic. 
mm-hmm. especially when you when you throw around terms like eye tracking or MRI scanners or neuromarketing, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, but then when you actually do start doing the work, they they get bored really quickly um, yes. because it's actually hard hard work, right? <laughs> exactly. That's uh, that's a big challenge. That um, when you do the job properly, it's most of the times it's more work it's more effort uh to do it right than uh yeah do it yeah. just do it quick yeah. exactly and that's the topic what we are talking about today yes. and um yeah wh- whether whether talking to agencies or clients implementing uh behavioral sciences in agile teams yeah that seems to be a struggle for that yeah that many companies face right uh, yeah. why do you think that is i think it's um kind of normal that um organizations um, as they get bigger, when you scale organizations, or if it's already a, a big traditional organization, they usually focus on efficiency. So there will be always somebody that is demanding a tool or uh, some silver bullets to do the job. Or uh, you see, when you go around and you see companies that focus on agile work and agile teams, they have all these sticky notes in their offices and uh, burn down charts. And you, you see so many things that have an implicit focus on efficiency, where people think they do the right thing because they're busy. And I would say the bigger the organization, um, the more often you see that mistake. And um, this is why I think nobody actually wants to do something that uh, causes more effort because the goal of using um, all these disciplines that you mentioned before, like behavioral economics, neuromarketing, um, and so on, it, it's more effort to, to create better hypotheses. It's more effort to do proper user research, uh, to understand customers' behavior, and so on. It's always more effort. So. If you want to put that into a streamlined, agile process for people that focus on burn-down charts, it won't happen. As long as they can so yeah, yeah, but say, but yeah, we, we do A-B testing. We did a couple of experiments last month. Some manager will say, yeah, but look, we do A-B testing. We, of course, we are innovative and we do experimentation. And nobody is asking the question, but are you doing it the right way? Maybe it's not about the amount of um, sprints you do, the amount of releases, the amount of experiments, but maybe it's more about the quality you do. Um, And this is something that most bigger organizations, they don't cultivate it. They don't foster it. There, There is not a focus on being more effective. Yeah, and so do you think there's an inherent issue with uh, embedding uh, behavioral science in agile teams? Is that um, uh, doomed right from the start, <laughs> yeah. or is, is there is there is there a way to make it successful? It's difficult. Uh, no matter if it's an agile org or a traditional one, um, I would say um, as soon as the organization is is too big, it's hard to implement it. Um, on a very core level, the task is um, to operationalize uh, everything you need to, to be done. And uh, topics like uh, behavioral economics, um, 
customer research or so on. Uh, and most of the times they are not operationalized inside these organizations, not inside the process. They have their daily stand-up meetings and scrum and sprint reviews and retros and whatever. But there is no meeting that asks, is that the right hypothesis to test? <laughs> there is no uh, operationalized meeting or thing in the process that asks, how do we prioritize this? There's most of the times that there are people focusing on business impact and they're guessing. They're just guessing what, what will happen. And they're not measuring the outcomes of their work. Maybe they're afraid that it will show them, oh, there is no outcome or it's not that positive. So this is why I think it's difficult, no matter what kind of organization. But I would say the agile organization um, doesn't have any advantage compared to the traditional organization when it's about fostering effectiveness. So managers that look for the silver bullet, they think, oh, no, we implemented agile processes in our organization, so we are fine. And they completely miss the point that this kind of organization is still not focusing on effect effectiveness, although it should. And it does maybe for small units, for small companies, for startups, but not for big ones. And that's a point that I see a lot of times when I work for companies and when we analyze their um, backlogs and when we analyze their A-B test results, we see what, what are they doing there and just scratching on the surface but not moving forward. <laughs> so so what do you think the most companies uh, should start with doing or executing on? Um, I usually start with a very boring topic, and that's the topic of prioritizing. So what we do when we um, start working for a client, we look at the existing backlogs and the existing ideas, and we try to match uh, these hypotheses or testing ideas, however you call it. <laughs> we try to match it with customer behavior. We we start with a theory. If it's a good hypothesis, then it's able to change customers' behavior. So what do we know about customer behavior? What are motivators? What are demotivators? So how can you fit your hypothesis to what we know? And what you see usually is 90 to 95 percent of all the hypotheses, they just <laughs> start to disappear because everybody realizes, ah, oh, yeah, no, it's just Actually, the motivation for doing that test is we didn't know exactly who has the right opinion or who's right or if we should do it this or that way. So then I say, so you're not experimenting, you're guessing, right? This is our two, two completely different things. Um, so analyzed with the right view, most backlogs disappear. And at the end, it's only two or three kind of good ideas but that you have to work on. And then... Um, the people automatically start with, but what should we do then instead if these hypotheses are not that good? So that's why we start with uh, backlog analyzing and, and uh, prioritizing what's inside the existing backlog to realize it, it's not connected with customer behavior and therefore not effective most of the time. Door neurowetenschappen met AI te combineren, detecteren ze bij brainengineers de emoties onder consumenten op basis van hersendata. Tegelijkertijd worden ook eye tracking, mouse tracking en schermopnames vastgelegd 
zodat je per seconde kan zien hoe je consument online interacteert en wat zij op dat moment onbewust voelen. Deze informatie wordt toegankelijk gemaakt voor je hele team middels hun Emotion Analytics platform BrainPeak, de sleutel tot de ware consumentenbeleving. Ontdekken hoe consumenten zich echt voelen op jouw website? Ga naar www.brainsneers.com. You often encounter companies where you need to completely redo their whole, like the, the KPIs, the way they measure things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see often that that companies uh, they're trying. Well, yeah, like you just said, uh, they're A/B testing, <laughs> um, not realizing that A/B testing is just the part of the validation, but you yeah. also still need to work to do the work before that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but also often that that companies or at least the e-commerce teams they they are they are looking at KPIs uh, they don't, they don't even uh, work on KPIs that actually benefit the company they they are they work with trickle down KPIs or very mm-hmm. narrow KPIs and that they, they might be optimizing for that mm-hmm. uh but they're in, in actuality they're not really adding any value to the to the company yeah. is that something you you encounter often or Yes, a lot of times. I would say uh, reducing the work to the KPI is like a doctor who's only treating the symptoms and not the cause of a disease. So the KPI is the symptom and the cause is the behavior of a customer and the trigger that you deliver to the customer. So um, if, if a hypothesis starts with we re-increase that and this and that uh, KPI, By doing that, I, I usually start with the first question. So how is what you change on the website connected to the KPI? So direct connection between what they want to change on a website with a KPI usually is an indicator of a superficial hypothesis that is not based on customer behavior. And that's one thing you can quickly implement. I, I recommend to use a hypothesis template So you can better prioritize because the hypothesis template should force you to think about the customer behavior. The template should uh, have the part that you need to fill in. Why does it change the customer's behavior? Because if it's not changing the behavior, your KPI won't change. (laughs) And um, that's something that you have to explain to people because their world of templates and websites and technology and KPIs, that's the only world they know. That there is somewhere a customer and he's doing things and that this behavior is the cause for the um, data you measure. So data is always a result of customer behavior, if you want to see it that way. You have to explain it to people. I think it's the biggest mistake if the experimentation team or a b testing team in companies is connected to the analytics department um, of course i understand the history for most companies uh, ib testing has something to do with data so they ask the data and analytics people to be uh, responsible for that but actually you're doing experimentation and you're experimenting with customer behavior so if you can't explain your kpi with customer behavior you only know half of the equation and and you're always changing things superficially but this is something you can operationalize change the hypothesis template make thing people think about the behavior that is the cause for the effect your your uh yeah you want to see and and yeah things are changing to work yeah 
Exactly. I think uh, one of the issues is also that um, uh, in an agile environment, I mean, you, a, lot, a lot of companies that are working on agile, they have like uh, two week cycles mm-hmm. where they where they deliver something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my experience, at least, uh, a zero cycle. I mean, uh, the, well, you can run an experiment, and but it's not only about just that one experiment is about the collection of experiments, building up yes. that knowledge of, of customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that usually doesn't happen within two weeks. No. Um, so, so how do you think that fits in? How, how do you manage that expectation at the, on, on the client side? Yeah, I, w- I would start with the vision. That means everything that you um, ship as a team will be tested. So basically, you stay with the two weeks of frequency, but it's not that you're launching things directly or shipping them. Everything will be tested through an experiment. So that would be the ideal state from my perspective. So there is no... um, So you eliminate the, the problem that you can choose between do I publish it directly and nobody will ever learn if it worked or not, or... Should I put it in an experiment? Because if if you give people that choice, they will always go for instant gratification and say, no, ship it directly, quickly. (laughs) We (laughs) know that it works. Confirmation bias, whatever. (laughs) Um, So this is why it won't happen. If you you let people decide, they always want to ship things directly. I would not give them the choice. Yeah, exactly. And then... um uh, basically requiring a- any change, even if it's just a technical thing, everything should be uh, running to yeah. the experiment uh, uh, team. Uh, but then, of course, uh, I think a lot of companies run into the, the the issue that they don't have the capacity to do so, the resources to do so. I mean, there are a lot of companies on the market. At, le- at least when you, they start. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, who, who, who would have such a company? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Let, let me think. But I mean, you can scale yeah. that. It's, it's starting with a lot of services yep. and companies. I mean, it starts with the testing tools. They, they're starting to build on-demand services. So you can just uh, press a button and somebody will develop the experiment for you. There are small yep. specialized uh, companies on the market that build experiments for you. So you do, that's just, I, I always start with the most... Um, with the, with the biggest constraint, and that's usually developer resources. So you, you can solve that thing. If you really want to solve it, you can yeah. solve it. And just calculate the business case. So how many of your releases might have a negative effect or they have a positive and you don't know it, no matter what, um, you're not learning from your releases. And, and calculate what that uh, problem is in euros versus we hire a company that just uh, makes an experiment out of it um, in the easiest case. In the best case, you will build your own experimentation system and experimentation platform, um, and you will be able to ship everything as an experiment with no extra cost. Um, yeah. you, you, you just have to start to do the equation. And, and the funny thing is that uh, I've, I've mentioned it in the, in, the, in the podcast before that often when I when I, you probably experience a similar thing that when you come at a company when you when you start uh, re- requiring the development team <laughs> to run experiments mm-hmm. often they see it as an extra thing right on top mm-hmm. of their already existing uh, probably very busy jobs yeah. and adding something to the to the to the backlog of, yeah. of the development team well actually uh, after a while they the development team starts to notice hey. But instead, it's not something extra. We actually, when we when we validate everything, we can do it in a way earlier phase. So instead of developing yeah. something for maybe three months, 
we yeah. can we can spend a week on running an, a proper experiment on that. Yes. See it fails, and it saves us three well two and a half months yes. of development. Yes. Uh, and that saves saves a lot of time. Yeah, and that that's what I also see as soon as, and that's what I mean when I call it operationalize it inside your organization. No matter if you change your hypothesis template, no matter if you change the way you you ship your stuff or or deploy it. Um, it's actually something where the change in your organization will affect and change your culture and the way people act. So uh, it won't happen uh, accidentally. You you have to make it happen. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's exactly what he, what we say in the podcast often. That it's it's not. I mean, zero is not something some trick you just do for a couple of months and then then you're done. I mean, it's it's a way of working. It's basically change management. What we're doing, right? Yes. Uh, exactly. We're changing the way. Uh, companies think about their products and their websites exactly. and how they should be um, should be uh, making those better. Uh, but then a question for you: How do we convince managers and decision makers on that? How how do you approach that? If you have a uh, maybe a very willing e-commerce team uh, and then uh, they hire you, but yeah, you still need to convince the manager or decision makers or stakeholders. <laughs> Uh, and do the actual yeah. value and, and not, not just going for that first six month or 12 month period uh, mm -hmm. working with you, but that they, they keep, keep doing this. How do you do I, that? How do you approach that? Yeah, my advice is uh, the CFO should always be your best friend. So as soon as you can uh, calculate the value of the work and the value of the change process or the value of the investment and experimentation, um, it, you will quickly prove that it's positive. So it's maybe not the best idea to convince the CEO or the CMO because they want that their big projects and big ideas where they don't measure the outcome uh, will still win. But the CFO, he's maybe the number cruncher and uh, the guy that is more on your rational side to, to calculate the business case. Uh, he will um, have the desire that everything the company spends money for has a positive ROI. And that's what experimentation and CRO, no matter how you call it, uh, stand for, right? It stands for only make things that deliver outcome and have a positive ROI and, and save tons of money by not doing the things that don't deliver ROI. So this is my advice. Um, sit together with the CFO and and calculate yeah. the whole thing from the beginning to the end. Exactly. And and the added benefit of that of, uh, is that if you work together with a CFO or, or the BI team, um, usually uh, yeah, as a, as a CRO specialist or agency that's hired or CRO specialist internally, you're, you're reporting numbers and hopefully yes. things that, that are better on the website. Uh, but of course it's, it's, um, much better if the BI team or the CFO even can confirm those numbers. Exactly. <laughs> um, except, uh, or in, in, instead of just you as the specialist saying, okay, we, we have 30 million extra, mm. and then everyone just looking at you, okay, yeah, that's nice that you th you say it's 30 million extra, but we don't see those 30 million anywhere in our pockets. So. Exactly. A big pitfall mm. for a lot of optimizers when they claim to have X million euros uplift and uh, then the CFO tells you, well, I don't see it. So then you're doomed, exactly, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is why I think um, maybe that's another area that, that we should cover um, in our talk because I think there's a lot 
a big lack of understanding um, of statistics, especially statistics of our experimentation. So there are still people that want an exact value to be communicated. They, you can't talk about uh, confidence intervals, for example, with them or whatever. Um, and and this is this is a, a big problem, especially for those companies that only do a handful experiments a year. And they want to be 100% sure that there is a positive RI. If you tell them, actually, there is no 100%, <laughs> they, they are, so then we leave it off. Then, then we don't do it. No, <laughs> I don't want that. Yeah. So uh, to, to um, work with uh, statistics and to tell people about intervals and things like that, uh, I think this is a lot of educational work that has to be done to enable, uh, especially the management level, um, in a company and to not produce some yep. bullshit results where you claim that you delivered just 30 million bucks or whatever. Online Dialog is al 10 jaar een toonaangevend CRO-bureau waar mensen, kwaliteit en kennisoverdracht centraal staan. Ze zijn een specialist omdat ze zich alleen richten op optimalisatie en klantgedrag. Het team zorgt voor online groei en waardevolle inzichten in je bezoekers en optimaliseren samen met jou de verschillende onderdelen van je CRO-programma, zoals websites, salesfunnels en customer journeys. Voor meer info ga je naar onlinedialog.nl. Besides uh, the statistics, uh, how, how, how do you see, um, for example, what do you guys report on? Um, I mean, that's that's basically the the, the issue with with uh, whole zero. I think that we mm-hmm. we we as zero specialists have full control usually mm-hmm. uh, over the numbers in an experiment. But over mm-hmm. a year with running a lot of experiments, um, yeah, of course the the, the numbers can vary <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Sure. Um, so what wh- what do you report on? What do you see as KPIs for the whole optimization program, not just one experiment? There is one answer uh, that is. Uh, that is a win-win for for both uh, sides. And I say the more experiments you do, the easier it is to calculate DRI. So if you only did one experiment, uh, one experiment, and you want to be sure what what's the outcome, then it's hard. But if you if you do several experiments, then it gets easier and easier. And as I said, we teach people what a confidence interval is, and we. Um, we try to report our results in that interval. So we say with a um, possibility of X percent, we made that, and with Y percent, we made that uh, result. We can't say you exactly, but somewhere in between is it. And we learned that the more accurate our reporting is and fits to what really happens, bottom line, the better uh, people trust in the overall program. So the, the the most loyal advocates in experimentation on our client side are the ones that then actually see the effect bottom line. That, of course, works great when you run experiments in a controlled environment. Yeah. But that obviously is not the case when when you work with live web shops mm-hmm. where things change continuously, uh, not only on the website itself, but also external factors mm-hmm. like competitor campaigns or overall trends that can go up and down. Yeah. Uh, so how do you cope with that? I would say, especially in e-commerce, of course, there's the big challenge of seasonality. So you have that high sale seasons where it's all about marketing and sale campaigns with 70% off additionality, whatever. So, um, 
Of course, we try to encourage our um, clients to do retests. So we do the same experiment maybe twice if we are not sure how it's affected by this kind of campaigns. And still, uh, for most um, our, of our clients, the sample size is too small, so we can automatically detect effects like that. So we are still dependent on the information that there are actually campaigns running. And we try to have a sample that is as normal as possible so we can claim that we avoided any influence uh, or we try to avoid as much influence as possible from campaigns like that. But sure, if, if, if you are in a very competitive market and with a very um, fast business model, you will have a lot of these uh, influences. Um, and the only answer is so far that you should retest things um, in during these kind of campaigns or seasons and outside these uh, campaigns and seasons to know the real effect. But for these clients where we do it, we again, we, we also had the advantage that we then started to think about um, experiments that we do, especially for these kind of high sale seasons, if it's fashion e-commerce, for example, um, so your roadmap changes and you start to learn what works and what kind of time. Um, and again, your your understanding of what, imp what are the factors that influence your overall bottom line RI, you get more and more learning. So it's the hardest way to start with, I want to know the RI of my experimentation program bottom line from the first experiment. You can't do that. You have to do more and you have to learn and how is it affected by your campaigns and so on. The more experiments you have, the more results you have, the more data you have, the more accurate uh, your RI uh, understanding will be. So, And that takes some time, of course, to build that trust mm -hmm. and confidence, which is why stakeholder management for Shiro is so important. Yeah, we, we developed a special workshop that we do with the management level of our client. We call it RI workshop. And we collect all their objections. So what do you think? What influences the RI? And how can we yeah. kind of create our very own approach to calculate the RI for you? So we know if we say there's no RI dump, that's not true. If we say the result of experiment is 100% the RI, also dump. The truth is somewhere in the middle. So let's find out yeah. what are the factors that we know we can cut away so we end up in this kind of confidence interval and and we explain yeah. it to the people we enable them teach them the statistics so finally when they got a report from us they know it is what what we have spoken about in that workshop and they know uh exactly. it's kind of an uh it, it's it's a perspective on what might be true or not <laughs> Yeah, like we just said, ideally you can state ROI benefits in some form of conversion or revenue uplift, but mm -hmm. it could just as well be in terms of saving your development team from implementing stuff that won't work anyway and saving a lot of resources that way. Yeah, but basically we started with the question, how do you get the organization uh, to focus more on effectiveness instead of, uh, instead of efficiency? And I would say, yeah, prove them that it's worth it. So these exercises, they sound really theoretically and based on statistics and so on. So, wow, this is the tough part. But I, I would say it's the foundation um, to, to, to prove 
this value. And if you don't prove that value, no, nothing will change in an organization. Exactly. And, and how would you actually sell zero packages to clients? I, I think it was Craig Sullivan saying in the CXL course, uh, zero for agencies, that you shouldn't be doing anything based on website KPIs and, and doing zero performance-based is almost always going to backfire. Is that also your experience? Are you, for example, selling hours or packages? We, we, we sell packages. And um, I would say the way we, we sell it to our clients is uh, pretty much the way I just um, told you. So we we start with calculating the business case and focus on effectiveness and telling um, our clients that we need a kind of a proof of concept that focus on a, on effectiveness and putting more resources on better user research, on better hypotheses, on better experiments is worth it. And you will always find these kind of people that understand it and that will be your advocates to say, yeah, let's do that. Let's give it a try because the way we are doing it right now can't be the right way. We are just busy and we don't measure the outcome of our work. So we feel good, but actually we see the numbers are going yeah. down and we can't change it. So everyone is feeling good except the CFO. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Talk to the CFO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before that's, he shuts down your team. <laughs> exactly, and that's a good tip, I think. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, last October I did an online course on cxl.com about heuristic analysis frameworks, ah. which is the course you teach. Uh, so first off, I wanted to thank you for putting in all the time and effort uh, to put the course together. And uh, yeah, so could you give our listeners a high-level overview of that course? The course... Um First of all, I see a lot of heuristic evaluation is just doing is is just based on on gut feeling, right? So most people that are doing yeah. it, they watch a website, they look at the website, and they say, "Well, I don't like that." And I think this is very dumb. Uh, you need an objective uh, framework so you can kind of yeah be better analyze what are the levers that you have. And the second thing, as I said, we do a lot of user research and I um, see two problems. Either companies don't do user research or if they do user research, they think everything that comes out of user research is uh, valid. And that's also not true. So a lot of times your users don't tell you the truth. And this is why I came to the conclusion together uh, with Pep, the, the founder of CXL Institute, that um, we should have a course about heuristic evaluation that is first making this process more objective um, and second that fills the gap. Um, so how can I get the answers that my uh, users and the user research won't tell me, right? And I use the example of a big expensive car and I say if you do a user research about that car, nobody will, will um, if you ask, why did you buy this car? Nobody will tell you, ah, to, to impress my neighbors, right? I, I have a, a deep complex about my self-esteem. So <laughs> nobody will tell you that, right? So these are, this is a lot about implicit goals and psychology and processes that are unaware in decision-making. And this is why you need um, heuristic evaluation to fill that gap. I don't want to say that doing user research is wrong or a waste of time. Analyzing the, the kind of persuasive power of your website is uh, 
like a the perfect add-on you need. Yeah. But it only works if you have an understanding about your uh, your customers, right? So that this this exactly. is something I explain in the course. Yeah. yeah, and I think that already in the first session of your course, you already provide an overview of all kinds of different research methods with their pros, their cons, mm -hmm. uh, their validity, and also showing that it helps to combine different sources to get closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that we all suffer from a huge bias towards using data from Google Analytics uh, or similar tools, because that's usually very easy to access and it's already contains a large amounts of data and mm -hmm. although that gives you an idea what people are doing you're still very much in the dark as to why they are showing certain behaviors and uh, yeah that's why it helps to combine different research methods including heuristic evaluations uh, to get a much broader overview of the actual issues on your website exactly i i have that picture i think it's also a slide in the course where i say like the data is like the shadow it's a projection of the user's behavior like if you have a light and a user it projects uh, an outline of the user on the wall it's not the user <laughs> or it's not the behavior it's just the result of the behavior and uh, seeing the the whole picture is much more than just the data so this is why i say if you have the data if you do user research and you have a good understanding about your users uh, behavior from, for example, a heuristic evaluation, then you looked at the same thing from three different angles, and then your overall picture might be much more valid than if you just use one method. Werk je aan een front-end AB-test en heb je ook last van de bekende flikkeringen in je variaties? Dit kan natuurlijk je testresultaten beïnvloeden en een positief testresultaat neutraliseren. Probeer Convert.com's AB-testing software, die Smart Insert technologie gebruikt en die flikkeringen voorkomt. Vijf keer snellere support via 24-7 chat, de helft goedkoper en het bedrijf is daarnaast maar liefst 15 keer carbon positive. Je doet dus jezelf, je bedrijf en de volgende generatie een plezier door hun website Convert.com slash sneller eens te bezoeken. In the course, you also introduce your framework for doing this. Uh, could you give us a short introduction of that framework? Yeah, the, the framework is uh, called the seven levels of conversion, and it's very old. It started, as I said, we started with user research like 20 years ago. And um, the framework was born when we presented the results of our user research to our um, clients. We were searching for like, what are the top uh, headlines or the top topics that of the, the errors that occur or the potentials we always see. So it was by aggregating the results of dozens of these kind of user research, uh, researches and it, um, it led us to um, seven different topics. So it starts with uh, relevance. So the most or the problem we see the most often is that um, websites uh, have a lack of relevance for, for the user. And it goes on with uh, trust. So people ask themselves, can I, can I trust this company? They will ask, where can I click, which is the third level orientation, uh, and so on. So you can kind of say it's a checklist of like the seven inner check marks that people have to do before they are ready to buy something. Actually, it's only six six check marks because the seventh one is something that most of the time happens uh, after the purchase. 
Um, but basically, it's like this, I would say, inner dialogue or an explanation of like inner factors uh, inside the customer's decision-making process. Um, that's the model. And since then, I think uh, early 2000s, we, we, we started working with the model. Um, A-B testing came later and building hypotheses and so on that came later. But right now, the model is validated with kind of thousands of A-B tests. And uh, we, we are still working with that. We get a lot of positive feedback um, in the German market, a lot of companies are working with the model. And now that I published it on CXL as a course, I also get a lot of yeah. positive feedback from CXL. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm happy that it's useful. <laughs> it's simplifying, right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's to the test of time. That's good, right? Yeah. Like, like every model, it's not the truth. It's just a way of simplifying the truth. So you, your, your, your work is going to be easier. <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, what's the saying again? Uh, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Ours. Um, I and of course my friend Chris Goward with his lift model. Um, yep. It's kind of similar to that, but um, the lift mo model has a plane, and I see it. It's sticking on a lot of office walls uh, because for people it's very um, easy to understand very with a plane. I said, "Damn! When we started our model, we forgot a plane or something." <laughs> So maybe you can use a car. Maybe that's uh, still available. A car, yeah. Uh, so, Andre, uh, yeah, we'll link to an explanation of your model and, uh, and the course in the show notes of the podcast. Uh, one final question, though. Um, of course, uh, you don't need inspiration to run A-B tests. Uh, that's what we do re research for. Uh, but more in general for your work. What inspires you? I would say most of the time from psychological um, models or points of view that help us to understand customer behavior better. So yeah. uh, some of the best hypotheses for optimization came out of workshops where we teach our clients to use persuasive principles or to use methods, uh, behavioral design methods, build personas, whatever. Everything that helps to understand customer behavior, uh, I would say these kind of thinking always um, ended up with better hypotheses and better results. Yeah, meaning the actual clients, which can be uh, inspiring. And sometimes clients expect us to be the expert in whatever they are selling, but that's often not the case, right? Uh, we are the experts in how to sell and how to optimize what you have, but uh, we're not necessarily the expert in the product itself. And that's good, because I would say it's yeah. even, even the other way around. Our clients, uh, they know too much about their customers. So not knowing that much uh, is the foundation for seeing the, the user experience the way their users see it. As a product yeah. owner, as a UX guy in the company, you can't see the user experience anymore as a customer sees it. So yeah. I think that's a big advantage. Some of the, our clients told me, oh, you, you can't start with the analysis of our website. Uh, you, you, you didn't get the briefing. And I said, yeah, yeah, thanks God, we don't have it. So we can do a better <laughs> analysis. <laughs> yeah, it's not personal for us. <laughs> exactly. Andre, thanks again so much for taking time to talk to us. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are there any conferences or events we'll be seeing you in the upcoming months? Oh, I don't know where you will be seeing me, but um, there it's the obvious conferences that I, I'd like to recommend. Like go to conference where you see 
people that are in the same job as you are. So uh, we mentioned the CXL Institute and their course, and of course, uh, conferences from PEB like the CXL uh, live conference or the elite camp in Tallinn is always worth a visit. I would say it's it's like a reunion each year to meet these great people. <laughs> yeah, I love reunions. <laughs> Andre, thank you so much for the interview and uh, hopefully talk to you soon. Thank you. This was season two, episode four of Zero Cafe with Andre Morris from Conversion Craft. And as always, the show notes can be found on our website, zero.cafe. This podcast is currently still mainly in Dutch, but if you're interested in our English episodes, please go to zero.cafe slash English to see an overview of our English episodes and to subscribe to get notified about upcoming English episodes. If you're interested in promoting your products or services to the best Zero podcast listeners in the world, please take a look at zero.cafe slash partner to see how we can collaborate. Next week, another Dutch episode where I talk about how you can get from data to psychological insights with Roos van Dam and Anouk Ehrens from Online Dialogue. Talk to you then and always be optimizing.